This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Uh, on this episode, I'm going to be talking about the Invisible Committee's new book, which is called Now, uh, which is published by Semiotext. Um, and I'm going to be talking through this uh, with Adrian, uh, who's a communist working in, in Chicago at the moment. Um, and we're going to discuss some of the themes uh, in the book. But I guess the kind of the starting point uh, is really sort of introducing uh, the Invisible Committee itself, uh, maybe sort of saying a, a bit about the success of some of their other books, like um, The Coming Insurrection. Yeah, um, I suppose it makes sense, uh, since these works are coming out now as well, to start back with the journal Tacoon, which I suppose is the sort of first uh, incidence of, of this tendency of political thinking. Um, so Tacoon is a journal that existed from 1999 to 2001. Uh, it put out two issues, which collectively authored uh, and I think what, in a nutshell, what mattered, uh, about it, what was new, so to speak, was a kind of merger that was announced there, uh, between kind of what's loosely called pro-situ or sort of post-situationist thought and a kind of post-structuralist analysis. Um, so it was in this sense, there was a kind of eclecticism that it testified to. So it, politically speaking, it was doing something that was not typical of either kind of recognizable Marxist uh, canon nor kind of uh, sort of pervasive anarchist analysis that you'd find in the 1990s. So it was bringing together a sort of mixture of things like Blanqui and Landauer, but also the Panthers and the 2nd of June movement. Uh, uh, politically speaking, uh, you also had situationists alongside autonomia and Italian feminism. Um, but it was shot through with a strong uh, spirit of insurrectional anarchism. Um, and so what you what this led to was a kind of uh, an insurgent, acephalous communist position that didn't track along any of the sort of recognizable uh, ideological lines uh, and, and was marked by a kind of uncompromising revolutionary theory that was deeply suspicious of cheap teleology, morality, and the left. Um, at the same time, uh, there was a kind of uh, philosophy that, that, that came through all, in all of this as well. So it wasn't strictly speaking a kind of activist or purely strategic uh, body of thought. There was also a kind of uh, deeply critical and so to speak critical theory uh, that was being developed there as well. And it was merging things like Nietzsche and Spinoza, the way that Deleuze had brought these thinkers together, um, and, uh, and thinkers like Agamben. Um, and part of what uh, 
what that allowed was, and this was something that early works of, uh, sorry, actually like the middle works of Agamben have been pushing for, which is a kind of way of thinking about biopower and thinking about uh, late capitalism and the analysis that the situationists, in particular De Boer, had had made of that um, at the same time. And so, you know, someone could correct me if, uh, down the road, but it seems like, you know, it's really in uh, the works that Agamben was writing late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, where he was announcing this need to think De Boer, Foucault, and Deleuze together to come up with a new sense of what revolutionary violence and revolutionary partisanship should look like, but he hadn't really worked out how that would play out. And I think it's in these texts of Tukun and later uh, this text, The Call, where you, where you see this synthesis happening. And what it really means is not simply a matter of trying to hold together Marxism and Foucault, but really allowing those two traditions to speak to, across one another and to reciprocally uh, alter one another and inform one another. So you had this claim there that, you know, what's been called biopolitics, um, in fact, is conducted to us through the spectacle or the spectacular relationship to ourselves, our way of inheriting a sense of ourselves as fundamentally uh, imagistic or based on predicates, uh, qualities. At the same time as you have an analysis of capitalism or the spectacle as a mode of governance, uh, so not as a pure wage relation or as a something that's subsumable under a logic of exploitation, but uh, but as a kind of governance that's happening at the very level of life and experience, what Kamat had called anthropomorphism of capital. Um, and so, so that's just a few words about the intellectual roots of this project. Um, and, and that can be found in the analyses of Tikkun. Um, I mean, that, that's sort of where, you know, it's, it's very, these are kind of key sort of common themes that are almost sort of on, you know, on everybody's lips in, in kind of critical theoretical circles. But, you know, the committee do something, um, you know, that kind of marks them out as unique, not least actually in terms of the sort of writing style and the invisible committee nature of, um, of how they, or perhaps he, she, they make uh, interventions. And I guess... Um, the f- sort of framing for this um, and where, you know, those themes of kind of and that project has, has come to bear is, is in this idea of a kind of like a current crisis, uh, which, which sort of frames the book. Uh, and I guess, you know, given that there are lots of different takes on crisis at the moment, what it, it'd be good to hear about, you know, that kind of sense of, of the Invisible Committee and a current crisis. Um. Yeah, I might I might just start a bit earlier. Um, in part, the language of crisis is a fraught vocabulary. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that um, it's a it's a it's at one hand uh, that we can say there is a crisis implies that we can feel something is deeply wrong with this world, uh, and there's an analysis here of the register within which it's useful to think about alienation or suffering or to base a kind of theory of uh, restitution or, you know, the term chikun actually, you know, means uh, a messianic restitution of, of existence. Um, And so there's a kind of, there's an analysis that says, you know, um, that our world is deeply broken, that our subject is deeply broken, that we have no longer any ties or roots or sense of place or identity or purpose. Um, And that, so there's an intervention in that, 
philosophy of alienation. Um, but there's also a deep suspicion of the way that crisis theory is deployed as a strategy of power. Um, I think these, these these sort of concerns come together in 2003 in a text called The Call, uh, which in some ways is the first invisible committee text. Uh, the, and this is written anonymously, it's unsigned, um, and it circulates hand-to-hand in France and, and across Europe. Um, and, and what it's saying is essentially that, you know, we need to recognize that that capitalism has taken more from us than just our labor or the value of the commodities we produce um, or our, or the means of production as a sort of like capacity to reproduce our subsistence and to survive. Um, but that what modernity has, has as a whole signified is the perpetual evisceration and, and emptying out of uh, – the capacity to live a vibrant and dignified and meaningful life with one another. And that that is a wider problem. They call it the, the emptying out of worlds. Um, and then I think what's happening here is there's a certain kind of uh, analysis coming from Federici and other Italian feminists, but also people like Ivan Illich uh, and a certain kind of primitive accumulation uh, conversation. And it's being reread as uh, as a communist from a communist ethical position as opposed to an economic position um, and what happens in this text is they essentially argue that all of the stratagems that we've developed uh, whether that be those of the new left uh, during the worker those of the workers movement during its height or even those of an anarchist subculture that's kind of inherited that whether that be punk or squatting or so on uh, have all managed to uh, contribute at, during certain moments uh, the ability to live collective power and to, uh, to feel a sense of purpose and so on, to move against this modernity, uh, but that they've all ended up routed and defeated, including the most vibrant and uh, richest most of the recent traditions, which was that of the Italian autonomy movement in the 70s. And that now to pick up the scraps, to pick up the, the ashes of that uh, insurgent communist uh, project requires a certain rupture with the left. Um, and this is something that the call produced a lot of controversy about, uh, which was essentially their argument that we need to not seek these kinds of loose coalitions across all broad social demo- democrat and kind of Marxist-Leninist and sort of broad citizenal, other other kinds of non-profit sectors, that, that loose, uh, what in Germany they call the Bundes, or the sort of wide coalition of interests, um, won't produce the kind of multi-generational communist force that's necessary to actually relaunch the, the project of a revolutionary movement. And so instead, we need to secede from the left and build, for, beginning from dense nuclei, or what they call communes, a new revolutionary movement uh, on new premises. And so the Tardak uh, commune uh, was founded shortly thereafter. And this is... a uh, this enters into a whole story that begins to concern the coming insurrection and, and the Tarnak 9 uh, case as well. I'm not sure if you want to talk about that here or if you'd rather turn directly toward now. No, I, actually, this is really fascinating. And, and I think, you know, kind of framing the book um, and I guess the kind of politics of the book's production uh, would, would be really, really useful. All right. Um, I suppose a word or two about... Uh, Tarnak 9 is prob- uh, in that case is important. So Tarnak is a, a small town uh, located in the 
center of France in the Limousine region, uh, which is a region that's known for uh, having been a stronghold of world of resistance during Second World War, and also having been a, one of the areas to which a certain post-68 generation uh, tended to relocate um, after the sort of crest of that movement had uh, fallen. And so Tornak uh, becomes a place where a certain kind of uh, concentration of communist activity begins to happen in the mid-2000s, shortly after the call is created. Um, and on November 11th in 2008, police raided the village uh, where uh, uh, maybe 15, 20 people had moved and taken over a grocery store and were kind of living collectively. Uh, there are 20 arrests that happened in total, nine are formally charged uh, approximately a year later, and this becomes the Tarnak 9 case. And one of the things that's important about this case, particularly in the U.S., after we've just seen the recent criminalization of the Trump inauguration protesters and so on, is that there was a use made of uh, anti-terrorist law to try and criminalize uh, what they called a criminal association. Uh, for the purposes of terroristic activity. And it essentially becomes a way of criminalizing the very bond that people have with one another more rather than specifically a set of deeds. Um, now, the, the claim is also that there was a sabotage of the TGV lines uh, that, that supposedly these people uh, were responsible for. Um, it is the case that in late to, uh, late of October and early November of 2008, there were horseshoe-shaped iron bars that were placed across power lines uh, during the night uh, in various points across France that delayed 160 trains. Um, but when these arrests happened, uh, it became clear very, very quickly that there was virtually no evidence uh, that the people in this small town, Tarnak, had, had done this act. Um, and, it, and one of the few things that allegedly linked them to this was this assertion that they had written in this book called The Coming Insurrection, uh, which has a, uh, some lines in it uh, about sabotaging metropolitan flows of capital, including uh, the high-speed train lines or the TGV. Um, and so in a sense, the book becomes one of the pretexts for criminalizing this group of young communists who've resettled in, in central France and are trying to relaunch a kind of Commune, uh, a communist movement based upon small, dense nuclei or, uh, of of uh, of practices and, and bonds and, and and people living together. And so, what what happens there is that it, it launches the coming insurrection into the into the public eye. It becomes a bestseller in France uh, when it's translated into the U.S. This you know, almost forgettable now talking head named Glenn Beck on Fox News who had a show <laughs> back then, you know, picked up the book and waved it around and said, look, the anarchists are coming. You know, there's going to be this new, you know, revolutionary, autonomous, terroristic force we have to watch out for. It's kind of this fear mongering. But you know, all it did was just create a massive audience for this book, which sold thousands of copies here as well. Uh, and so they, they entered the limelight, uh, both through state uh, criminalization, but also as, as the alleged authors of this, uh, this tract. Um, and one of the things that's, it was, uh, that's immediately notable about the coming insurrection is that it, it, it says something that I think most people had not 
at this point hurt. Um, certainly those who, you know, were not in small far left circles in France who might have heard of Tacoon or the call. Um, and so in a way for, for most people in the West, the coming insurrection was the first time they had encountered this tendency of thinking. Uh, and one of the things that it said, uh, was that, um, you know, we need to learn how to see the West and Western imperialism, what they called empire, uh, as, and a kind of relativistic, nihilistic attitude that we seem to take for granted, as many of us, as precisely a form of government, a form of uh, power that courses through us, and that our inability to take ourselves, our ideas, our perceptions, our own experience seriously, to feel a degree of certainty and belief in ourselves, in what we, in what we perceive, in our reaction to the world, in a sense, a kind of disconnect between uh, experience and, and our own uh, feeling of you know, what's legitimate to, act, to do or say, that that breakage in us is a precise, precisely a function of government. In fact, it's not only one function, but it's the primary function in which uh, the economy rules our lives. And so in a nutshell, what they're saying is that truth, understood in a certain way, is the is the very element, the very medium of communism, and that that is the insurgent force that we need to rebuild is, is an experience of collective perception based in a kind of collective sense of our own uh, perception, our own sensibility, kind of um, yeah, the ability to to uh, take our, to refuse to distance ourselves from our own experience. So the coming instruction basically says every interactional process begins from a truth that people uh, refuse to be dissociated from, that genuine political affinity is always affinity within such collective experiences. And in this way, it kind of it, it announced a departure from a certain ideological conception of solidarity, uh, for example, one based on ascriptive identities, you know, blackness or citizenship or uh, whether religious or ethnic identity, uh, but also no less a kind of leftist subculturalist identity of political positions and ideological sectarianism and so on. Um, it said, you know, those are not the basis of, around which these predicates, these ideologies are not the basis around which a force should be assembling itself. Uh, and so instead of that, we should see composition, the need to build a party as playing out in different ways. So rather than looking for who we think we would agree with or, you know, assuming that our comrades are to be found, you know, amongst people who look like us, who speak like us, who say, you know, apparently participate in the same subculture as us, what we should be looking for are people who see the same things as us, who feel attached to the things we feel attached to. And in that way, our relationship are, so to speak, what we've come to call our affective ties to the world um, are more fundamental than our identities or our scriptive ideas. Sort of the way we describe the world matters less than the way the world feels to us, the way that we encounter it. And in that sense, it, the coming instruction said all bonds today under empire are criminals. None are innocent. And that every time you find someone with whom you share a sense of power or conviction or someone, there's a tiny spark of communism in that. And that those certainties, if they are pursued you know, in an uncompromising way, uh, will lead us 
to defection, to combat, to war. Um, so in a nutshell, it was saying every ethical certainty today is political, that that's the living ground of politics, uh, and that we need to relaunch the concept of communism through this new reading of experience. And that that will push us, if we take that idea seriously, uh, to revise our understanding of what a commune in communism is, that, that we can break with these sort of painful, moralistic, punishing milieus and organizations uh, of the left, of the far left, or what have you, that only seek to reproduce themselves, that attenuate every lived truth in that process, uh, essentially become narcissistic kind of uh, echo chambers, right? And go back out into the world, right? And look for those bonds where they are in the world, not based upon sort of preconceived ideas, but upon who is seeing the same thing and reacting in ways that resonate with one another and building upon those connections. Uh, so it's, it's a call to, like I said earlier, to break and secede from a certain leftist habitus, a certain kind of cultural, political milieu, and go out and say, you know, the communist force you're looking for, it, it starts somewhere else. It starts in uh, people's way of encountering one another in the world through practice. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we should be looking for comrades in places we don't actually traditionally think to look. I mean, this these themes actually right through from uh, the criminal case through to questions about, you know, kind of um, solidarity or, or bond building, the idea of, you know, kind of friendships are all in now but now is is the third book they've done um mm -hmm. or the third book from the from the committee and, and it's interesting how these you know these themes are, are still there and I, and I guess um it would be good to kind of pick up um on a few of these so we we might just kind of throw around a couple of uh, kind of key things from, from the chapters and, and actually you know thinking about um their own sort of or you know the potential uh, involvement with with the state is this um, sort of um, question about about kind of rioting and you know the sort of uh, active responses um, to to the French state. So I wonder if if you could say a little bit about you know where these kinds of um, I guess kind of themes come up in their in their practical political analysis that comes up in in the first sort of. Um, three chapters or so. Yeah, sure. Um, I think maybe one of the the original theses uh, of now, uh, which was you could find elements or traces of it in the coming insurrection or in the book that followed it to our friends. Um, but I think it's it's most explicitly developed and worked out in now is this this idea that. Uh, what we're encountering, what we're going through is a kind of implosive fragmentation of the West, um, a period that we're living through the period of uh, the death of hegemony. And so talking about that might, might be a, a helpful way in. So yeah, speak. cool. Um, and so what I, what I think is going on here in, in a simple way to put this is they're offering a kind of descriptive account of the anarchy of our time. Of our period of history. Um, it, you could sum this up in the idea that everywhere you look, unity has become problematic, uh, which is to say, whether we talk about the, so to speak, the, the, thing, the features that tie, so to speak, American or British or French society with a capital S there together, 
no less than in the experience of, of work uh, and of labor, as well as just in everyday social life. Right? There's no longer – it's very difficult, if possible at all, to say that there's anything like a majority underpinning uh, the world today. So just, you know, if you think about the liberal hypothesis, there was this idea that we would sort of from Westphalia onward, we would overcome sectarianism and, in, and sort of internecine civil war of, of Europe by forming something like, uh, like a modern state form that can encompass all the different ideals and that that becomes a kind of thesis of, of what government is supposed to do. It's supposed to be this neutral instance, this leviathan that allows us to set us set down our weapons and cooperate with one another across all of our differences, right? This kind of modern state ideal, right? And I think, you know, one of the things that we should see happening today is that just that idea is just totally dead. Uh, if not dead, then dying, right? And that means that things like general interest or kind of majoritarian hegemonic uh, moral outlook that tied together the national project um, are now just experienced as uh, either farcical or satirical lies or desperate uh, nostalgic fantasies to which people are clamoring back to and, and failing to do so along the way. Um, and, and so the Invisible Committee enter into the situation and they say, okay, great. Let's just recall a couple things. First of all, what has died or is dying was only ever a certain fiction or phantasm to begin with. So this illusory unity of the people, capital P, right, of our national identity, uh, of a kind of human rights framework as the universal face of humanity, the enlightenment ideal, right? Um, these were always mythological. Uh, these were always fictions. And so the novelty of today is just that not that the fiction is suddenly unreal. It was always unreal, but that it's lost its explanatory or disciplinary power for a lot of people. It no longer shores up respect for authority nor commands any recognition within us. Right? Uh, and any professors, activists, judges or whatever who would try and sort of speak for everyone and tell us what's good for us all, they all just seem like strange dinosaurs, especially to the generations coming up today. So one way to think about this is simply just this is sort of like the long durée of the death of God playing itself out within uh, the political realm, right? If by that we mean that all of the signifying ideals on which the society has sort of wagered its internal consistency have now inwardly collapsed. Uh, when we talk about anarchy, the anarchy of our time, this is a thesis they take from both Reiner Sherman and Giorgio Gauman, right? Uh, what they mean is that the more the authorities try and patch the holes and push for some kind of nostalgic unity, the more divisive those authorities become. Right? And so the anarchy there is just the groundlessness, the inability to rest any claim to legitimacy or authority on a sort of recognizable uh, signifying foundation or, or, or hegemonic ideal. And so the proposal here is that we should not propose, look for a new unified horizon. Right? And, and I think this is probably one of the most controversial or distinctive features of, of, the, of the political current that we're talking about here. Let's say, for example, if the world is to be saved, this will be in each of its fragments, uh, whereas the totality could only be managed. Right? And to go back to the point we were making earlier, right? if, if communism needs to proceed from 
the very terrain of everyday life, right? What we're saying in terms of fragmentation is that today, everyday life is fundamentally discontinuous. And the the outcome of that then is that if there's political conflicts today, they will always be between minority factions. And no matter how large they are, that no one can be more than a a minority faction. And that states are increasingly recognizing this kind of implosive horizon. And yet, at the same time, they're equally aware that they have no any no sort of ideal or value that they're able to replace it with, right? And so what we're seeing is this sort of desperate, separatist, protectionist, parochial kind of uh, compromises, Brexit, America first, or Duterte's drug war, right? Uh, these sort of desperate measures that, that try and clamp down on something like a smaller, more minority sense of, of social fabric, um, for, you know, out of the impotence to, to replace it with anything like a wider Big Ten political vision. So, so the classical train of politics, the field of classical politics, has has internally imploded, uh, and there's no ideal to replace it. And their claim is that this fragmentation cannot be reversed artificially from above by force, whether that be by panic, fear, or brutality. And there's a wager here, right? And this could turn out to be wrong. But their wager is that no left populist recuperation will manage to do this either. Right? And we could certainly try to imagine kind of Bernie Sanders figure or Corbyn or some other sort of thing coming along in, in, in Britain or the United States. But I think you know, if we look at Spain, if we look at Greece, right, it's fairly clear that they have not been able to stop the, the crisis. Uh, they've not been able to turn around austerity and that the, so to speak, hegemonic power or populism that they hope to recreate uh, through the sort of new rebooted social democracy isn't working and it isn't solving the problem. Uh, and so as you, go, as, as you sort of take stock of all of this, uh, this internal implosion, uh, you have to at the same time recognize that through all of this, everyday people, whoever that, whoever that is, not the professional politician class, have already undergone a kind of disinvestment, that there's been a kind of massive desertion of the field of classical politics that's accompanied this, uh, even if that's largely been interior or sort of immobile, meaning it hasn't produced a lot of outward ex- expressions. And here one, one could disagree with the thesis or not, right? It's not something that we can empirically verify. But their wager is that as we see classical politics imploding, the liberal hypothesis being emptied out, we're also, we can also assume or we can postulate that a lot of people are basically done with this whole horizon of representative, status, normative politics, that it means nothing to anyone, no one gives a shit about it, uh, and that as a result, how you speak about politics and how we imagine rebooting a communist project today needs to take stock of this and come from a different place. Their way of thinking about it, uh, and, and what we're trying to think about here in terms of fragmentation, is that uh, these fictions of the nation, the working class, the subaltern, and so on, uh, won't be the terms around which a new partisan movement recomposes itself. And, if we, and so if we look, for example, at the ruptures, to come back to your question about the riots and blockades we're seeing in the past 10 years, right? If we look at the ruptures of, our, of the past decade, 
think about Gezi Park or Standing Rock or the demonstrations around the labor law conflict in, uh, in 2016 in France, what we're seeing are we see people recomposing into fighting forces across unprecedented gaps and differences of experience. When they come together, though, the tendency is not to form an, a sort of newly signifying ideological structure like a, like a political party or a constituent assembly. Rather, what they're doing is they're occupying plazas or fields, as in the case of Standing Rock, right, blockading infrastructure, as in the Val de Sousa or Notre-Dame de Londres, or, or along the, the Keystone XL pipeline or the Line 3, pipeline, uh, the Line 3 uh, blockades uh, in the northern United States right now, right? And they're fighting all, every force that attempts to disperse them. So they're gathering, they're occupying, they're blockading infrastructure, and they're rioting, uh, as particularly in defense of those uh, occupations, right? And that this forms the essential grammar of our contemporary political movements, riot, blockade, occupation, right? And if we look about, if we looked at that, we need to recognize that, the, you know, all of those gestures involve moments of intense vitality, shared truth, and collective intelligence, but that none of them are attributable to any kind of recognizable sociological subject or, or sort of political identity that, that cuts across all of that. You know, it's not enough just to say, as Paul Mason and others did, right, that like, you know, you see a kind of like downwardly mobile middle class of youth, you know, that's the new subject or so on. Like, it just doesn't work. These sorts of efforts to sort of pigeonhole the new uh, insurgent movement within this or that group of people. And you really miss the point uh, if you do that. Because what we're seeing, in, in fact, is the flight from a kind of classical politics that would need a kind of unified, uh, coherent, ideologically grounded subjectivity as its vessel, as its primary mode of organizing. And what we're seeing instead is something like a bunch of fragments breaking off from the, the places they're supposed to be, whether it's professors or right, uh, uh, firemen or you know, dejected college students or punks or, you know, bicycle messengers, right? And they're coming down to these places of where partisan life is organizing itself. And they're fighting and saying and doing things that have nothing to do with the places they're from, right? And so the common force that's being built is not indexed back to the lives we had. There's a kind of becoming uh, or a kind of process. This is literally what individual committee will call the commune that develops between us in these moments uh, that is itself the very basis uh, around which people are composing. So the movements are producing their own foundations in and through the, the process of composition and battle and, and uh, self-organization. Uh, and slightly later on in the book, they, they sort of take this on a bit uh, with this concept of, of destitution. Um, and I guess that would be quite a useful idea to sort of play around with um, as a way of sort of getting towards the kind of um, concluding ideas in the book, which, which talk about the relationship between the kind of um, idea of communism and a sort of um, destitution. Um, so I, I wonder if you like give me like a, a little a little definition, or you know maybe give a flavour of, of of destitution before we sort of get into um, their eventual kind of re remarks that, that close the book. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think in a in a nutshell, 
the, the problem here is we could approach it a couple different ways. The, the first, we could just simply say that communism is not going to return. This is part of what we've been saying all along. Communism won't return to the 21st century the way it left. What we need today is to think about a new non-totalizing uh, understanding of how from fragment to fragment, from territory to territory, commune to commune, rupture to rupture, occupation to occupation, a new experience of communist partisanship is arising and can continue to build itself. And so one way to think of it is our time, this fragmentation I've just described, right, it's, it's, it's dragged us kicking and screaming back to earth. And the constituent problem that concerns, because just to be, just to put that uh, a finer point on that, it's dragged us back to earth because it's denuded, emptied out, and uh, withered all of those fictions that those extraterrestrial sort of unifying fictions that once drove the Western political project. None of them make sense to anyone anymore. And so well, that's what I mean. I say that it's, this fragmentation drives us back to earth because we're back standing on the ground in which there are only constituted actors. There's only forces getting organized from the different places they are, whether that be the CIA, ISIS, right, Standing Rock, uh, combatants, right, the people building these occupations at ICE offices. Right? Everyone is a force on a flat surface. And that's the sort of starting point from which we, we must begin to think today. And the destituent problem or destituent power, this idea that, uh, that Agamben, uh, I think, provides perhaps the most proximate source of, of this idea, uh, it concerns how, do we, how to build up a force of collective, revolutionary-minded, yet irreducibly singular people that's capable of dreaming and fighting together without falling back on the decayed Western fantasies of the party, the state, the people, and so on. And so... The destituent communism means approaching politics with the idea that what we're doing is creating pathways between fragments, not subsuming them in new holes. We're not here to build a new society and to act in the name of that new society that we project ahead of us. But what we're doing is we're organizing for basic social reproduction and self-reliance in joyful and experimental ways without using law or the money to bind us together. And that, you know, no matter how many and how massive the scale of this communist experimentation, and of course we hope it will continue to grow and grow in the coming decade, uh, that, no, that no matter how big it gets, that nothing like universality is, is going to be there to read off of that. Every commune, every bond we share remains singular from here on out. I mean, this is sort of the, the ultimate upshot of the anarchy of our time is that communism no longer should be thinking of itself as a project that gathers individuals into a new great society, but as a way of collectively organizing our lives without recourse to species, unities, or specters uh, in ways in which all of the singularities that come together feel more powerful through that self-organization without losing the sense of their singular perspective, their own ability to see and perceive the, the world from their unique point of view. And, you know, of course, forces like Google and Facebook and other kinds of cyberneticians of our time want to reorganize us too, right? And perhaps see themselves as post-ideological or sort of post-political while they do that, right? Uh, but the claim is that although they promise a new kind of social composition, whether that be through social media or other sorts of, sorts of, sort of digital horizontality or whatever, that ultimately they offer no 
nothing other than a sort of standardized interface through which we can interact, right? That in the long run, there's nothing like a vital life form that's going to take hold of us or that we'll be able to lay claim to through those forms. So those kinds of infrastructures are actually sort of, they're not, it's not that they're not collective, it's that they're not vital. They offer no, no possibility of a joyful, collective, happy force that, that can act and expand. Um, so part of the wager here is to parse apart what, what sort of fake community of digital, social, sort of online uh, management uh, produces today and push for a different sense of what collective, uh, vital, insurgent life could look like. So to pull those two uh, visions apart and say they're not the same things, right? Uh, we don't want to become spectators on our own lives, entrepreneurs of ourselves. Uh, and so, you know, it's we shouldn't be surprised when we see phenomena like the, the cortege de tête, this sort of like lead procession phenomenon that happened in France where, you know, all these different people would come to the front of these union marches and basically – take over the situation and riot and fight the police and so on. You know, we shouldn't be surprised to see these things cropping up more and more um, in our times because the kinds of collectivity and the kinds of common experience we're offered are just, they're awful. They are impoverished. They're pathetic. No one cares about them. Uh, and we can do better. And so to, uh, to put a finer point on the idea of destitution, so that's the sort of initial uh, set of assumptions from which we need to think about a destituent project. But I think there's also a sort of, um, I think we'd say a couple more things about this. That destituent uh, communism or the concept of destitution, it responds to two sort of problems, um, which have to do with the very vision of revolutionary power, or the, and literally the, the meaning of what a revolution is. Uh, and the first is that – so if we state you know, in plain terms what, we, what the classical idea of revolution was, right? It's reclaiming, expropriating uh, the world that's been taken from us, right? It's storming the Winter Palace, right? Taking over the centers of political and economic power, right? And running them in the name of the dispossessed, whether that be right, the subaltern or right, uh, the native kicking out the settler or the working class taking over – uh, you know the the means of production from the bourgeoisie, right? What you have is a problem of restitution of something that's been taken, right? And to do so, you would need, you need two things. You need to understand who reclaims, right, in the name of what the revolution is carried out, and what you're reclaiming. So, what is the objective uh, world that you're taking back? Right? Part of what what we're at a loss for today is to say either of those things. Neither of those questions can be answered today in the way they were. They once were in the 20th century. So the tension of uh, here is that destitution means that we inherit a revolutionary project uh, and feel close to that tradition, yet we can't live its problems as if they're still our own. So we don't inherit the revolutionary movement as if you know it's a matter of arming the working class and affirming the labor the labor power. You know that that you know largely was the sort of programmatic, programmatistic or sort of programmatic form that in which revolution was thought about in the 20th century. That, in t that today, whatever binds us needs to be invented through the very movement of insurgency. And so the Tikkun or Invisible Committee, they'll talk about this as a kind of creation of worlds or communes, right? Um, and so the, 
that binding unity of a revolutionary force has no uh, no identity to fall back on, no name of you know we're doing this in the name of the people, the working class, or so on. At the same time, as it doesn't have a world that it would be worth taking over. You know, we don't look out in the world and say like. You know, I can't wait to expropriate uh, this agro-business factory farm, right? Or, the, you know, run by robots, right? I can't wait to take over this, you know, nasty mess of, de- of decaying freeways so that are crumbling all over Chicago, right? Or, the, you know, it's, it's, so there's not a, a sort of – the world we inherit is capital's world. It's not our world. So whether it's on the side of the subject or the object, right, the, the process of revolution needs to be rethought. We need to both create a, a collective force that we're not able to just point to as, as extant, and we need to build a world and a way of living with one another uh, that doesn't currently show itself as just ready to be expropriated out there in the world. Right? So there's a sort of identity problem and there's a practice problem built into that. I think what I would say here is that uh, – I think the destitution moment can be understood in two basic ways as a result of that. On the one hand, there's a kind of, uh, a kind of negative or destructive component there. Right? So de- destitution means the destruction of capital's world, the ability to blockade, uh, empty out, and obstruct the functioning of the institutions that, that make the economy and, and the state function here. But, this, but it also means more than that. So, it's a, so that's a sort of ne- negative part. But destitution goes beyond a thesis of negation or, or simple blockading um, that you can read about in, for example, Endnotes or other kind of left communist critiques today, you know, blockading uh, choke points and so on. Um, because destitution has to do with not just with like obstructing uh, the flow of commodities, but also emptying out the need we have of the institutions that they reproduce. So there's a kind of uh, positive project involved in the very obstruction of this world. A lot of the ways that which people have started to talk about this is a kind of unity of building and fighting, living and struggling, which is to say struggles are opportunities to deepen bonds and collective affirmations and attachments at the same time as they simultaneously constitute the very uh, positivity that we aim to defend and expand. And the trick here is there's a kind of recursive logic, right? In destruction, we build the bonds that give this destruction its positivity. And destitution aims to kind of hold together that problem as the contemporary problem of revolutionary violence, right? As opposed to the, so to put a, you know, in a nutshell, if the previous uh, epoch of revolutionary struggle was about realizing the, the identity of the laborer or restoring identity that has been taken from them. In this one, in our epoch, it's more about deserting and fleeing the forms of impoverished life that we're offered. And, and through that desertion or flight, which also looks like blockading and, and, and uh, obstructing the economy, inventing new collective forms of uh, self-organization that don't that are not ready-made, and we don't know what they're going to look like. So on the one hand, you can start anywhere. On the other hand, we need to recognize the gap that separates us from the form, the old, old revolutionary image. Um, and that finally, what we need to think about here is not a, eventually a kind of new social contract, a new constituent law, uh, 
lawmaking agency that will come out of all of this as a new sort of representative populist project. Um, that fundamentally, the revolutionary desire, our desire, is not to seize power and lay claim to what's been, you know, rightful, rights rightfully ours or what's been taken from us, but fundamentally to flee this disastrous world. Uh, and that includes disastrous images of sort of workers' power and proletarian uh, dictatorship that, that tanked that revolutionary project uh, in the early 20th century as well. So destitution is, you know, certainly, if it's one thing, it's a kind of anti-statist image uh, of revolutionary power. I mean, we've we barely kind of scratched the surface of the book. You know, there's a lot more going on uh, in terms yeah. of kind of, you know, specific uh, political in- interventions on the French uh, question, you know, questions about how we organise the economy in the kind of, you know, platform sort of context. I, I, I wonder just to, to kind of conclude, do, do you get a sense of a kind of, you know, a, another book forthcoming or, you know, a, a, is there a sort of... Um, set of practical projects that might might flow from this do, do you have a sense of kind of what what's next after now um i mean that here again i i think what's happening right I, one would have to speak rather about what's happening currently yeah uh, as opposed to what's co- coming next right because the strategy here is not like you said a kind of program or blueprint so much as it is a kind of situated way of looking at potentiality for uh for collective insurgency based upon the really existing situation. Um, and, you know, that's, that's an irritating answer. I realize that, but uh, nonetheless, there's a just <laughs> truth in it. Um, I think what I would rather point out is to maybe, uh, uh, you asked earlier just uh, for a few words about the sort of closing statement of the, of now, like what, what is communism? Like what is their sense of, uh, of communism for the 21st century? Right. Um, and, and so if it's all right, I might just like, speak rather to that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think what, what's at issue here is, you know, whatever would come next, uh, really what comes next is, is, we could think about that question is what comes after the sort of uh, image of social insurgency based on a kind of like institutional paradigm where, you know, the best thing we want to do is, uh, you know, build a new set of laws, institutions, social relations modeled on a sort of other kind of morality or something. Um, that, since we're not doing that, what are we doing? I mean, what we're saying here is that communism is not a way of reorganizing the management of society, and it's not an alternate model of economy, that in fact what we want is not a different economy. Uh, it's not even a mode of human sociality per se, since it's not even strictly speaking about us. Uh, the question of communism issues today, not from an ideology, but from a kind of immemorial experience uh, that has been you know, arguably present since the dawn of history. And that is a, a feeling of community between us and the world, right? Then, that we've been, that's what's, if there's something that's been taken away from us, it would be that. It's the ability to actually feel connected to places, people, uh, and even including non-human life, right? And so, Fundamentally, what we're looking for is not a better economic deal uh, with society, but a form of community that's not subsumable in economic terms at all. Uh, and that what we're really pushing for here is then, you know, not a kind of picture of a transitional project, uh, which it's fine to do, right? I mean, people who 
are close to the coming the, the the committee also wrote a book called first revolutionary measures which i recommend people check out uh it's sort of a you know a rough draft of something like uh, a way of answering the question of what would happen if for example right we had routed the police and managed to blockade the economy and and actually could begin thinking about how to reorganize our lives right so in the sense it's a, it thinks about uh these sort of trans questions. It was co-written by uh, with Eric Hazan. Um, so we could we could look at that, but um, I think the the main idea here is that uh, economism needs uh, to to present our lives to us in a kind of impoverished way, in which we're all these individuals pursuing our collective and or sort of our sort of private interests, and the, and then the you know how does the, the big question becomes how to organize these individuals in a, in a, in a in a subsuming framework, right? I think what we're talking about instead is that um, we need to we, we need we need to develop a different kind of ethics uh, in which we learn to see ourselves not as these particles or atoms, uh, but as relational beings made up of uh, of ties and, and, and who are always already living in a set of relationships with other people. Uh, and so. I think this this, uh, this fundamentally changes the sort of way in which we think about politics because if, if the continuation of capitalist society depends on us relating to each other as if we were these sort of like particles of interest, then we're always going to end up uh, in that paradigm with a kind of new leviathan at the end of the road, right? Where we're always looking for you know, new forms of contract that tell us how to behave with one another and how to not get screwed over by one another and so on. Uh, I think what we want is to to get out of that managerial paradigm of thinking about politics, uh, and I, so I think you know recentering project uh, the communist project around joy, around shared affections for one another, around new forms of kinship. I would recommend people check out this book, uh, Joyful Militancy, which, although the title is perhaps misleading, it's actually trying to sort of reframe uh, the so-called militant. Uh, politics in in ways that are more centered on joy and less on kind of rigid radical identity. Uh, that was just that just came out recently by uh, Nick Montgomery and Carla Bergman. Uh, I think that's that's another sort of way of coming at this problem of you know what would what would it mean to shift politics away from this idea that you know there's a way in which an institutional framework we all have to look for to govern our lives and manage our connections and sort of like. Uh, fair or quote-unquote democratic ways and begin asking a different kind of question like what would it mean to to share joy and get organized with one another in ways that open up new frames of connection new frame new ways of living um and i realize that's a bit abstract but i actually think that our movements today are posing these questions to us in perfectly concrete ways right uh whether that be the movements that we've seen in the squares throughout starting in right in uh spain and Greece and moving west through the Occupy movement, uh, whether that be the Standing, Standing Rock or other forms of uh, uh, situated struggle like that, uh, or along pipelines resistance and, um, and so on. I think there's all those, these ways in which these, these movements are not only not interested in becoming a new political class, but they're saying right, we are ready to give up the lives that we've been offered. I think you've, you've seen this vast phenomenon of people just deserting their identities in these moments and finding other ways of living with one another and, and 
And the trick is how do we make that into an irreversible break and how do we scale that break up so that more and more people can feel comfortable breaking away from the kind of social uh, dependencies that currently pin them down and feeling more free to experiment with other folks in new ways. Um, and so I think that's what needs to come next is a, is a vast process of detaching from current institutional forms and throwing ourselves into a more collective experiment with one another without any preconceived idea necessarily, except maybe some rough indications of, of what that has to mean in advance. You know?